break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 9th of July, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show, closing out the week on this Friday. We've got plenty here for you on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking more about the situation in Haiti. We're also going to be talking about the climate justice movement here in the United States, saying no new Cold War with China But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with the resistance in Colombia, which is rolling on. Those were the sounds of late night protests in Colombia on Wednesday being held in defiance of the ongoing mass repression of protests related to the national strike that has been shaking the country for over two months now. In fact, this week marked 10 weeks of the uprising that has placed the country's right-wing government on the defensive. For 70 days now, hundreds of thousands of people in every corner of the country have mobilized consistently in the movement that began in opposition to a tax reform bill, believe it or not, but has grown to encompass the full panoply of issues facing the urban and rural poor, working class, and peasantry. The tax bill was the trigger for such a broad mobilization because it was aimed almost exclusively at those with the least ability to pay increased taxes. And to add insult to injury, it was allegedly being brought in to promote quote-unquote development for the very people who would be hurt the most by the tax. And thus, the protests grew into an uprising highlighting the galloping inflation eroding the purchasing power of everyday people that was happening amidst the significant poverty and unemployment that also is hurting many everyday people. In fact, Colombia has the second highest rate of unemployment in Latin America, and 34% of people live below the poverty line. In rural areas, 81% of people struggle to access clean water, and 68% of the population suffers from overcrowding. The brutal internal conflict waged by the government against social movements attempting to turn this state of affairs around has had its own economic effect. Some estimates detail that per capita income could be as much as 50% higher had the country been at peace instead of war. So it's easy enough to see how an uprising could continue for 10 straight weeks. The government, as you might imagine, has not wanted to make even the slightest concession, despite claiming for the sake of international media that they wanted to embrace various poverty reduction measures. Instead, they have increasingly turned to aggressive actions by the police and the military. According to human rights groups inside the country, between April 28th and June 26th, a total of 4,687 cases of police violence were registered in the country. These included 44 deaths, 1,617 victims of physical violence, 82 victims with eye injuries, 228 cases of shooting with firearms, 28 victims of sexual violence, 
nine victims of gender-based violence, 2005 arbitrary arrest, 784 violent interventions, 35 cases of use of venom grenades, 48 cases of respiratory issues due to tear gas, and organizations are attempting to verify the details of 29 other homicides. In fact, Colombia is now second only to Myanmar in the highest number of deaths per day in protest. The current government in Colombia has also totally abandoned any pretense of following the peace deal signed between the government and the FARC Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia a few years back, despite the FARC adhering scrupulously to its end of the deal. As a result, paramilitaries and drug traffickers, often one and the same, and often linked to the government, have moved into the former FARC areas competing to control natural resources and land. This has also led to a major increase in violence, especially in rural areas. On June 24th, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs reported that between January and May 2021, over 29,250 Colombians were forced to abandon their homes in 63 mass displacement events due to violence. According to the report, 81% of these citizens remain displaced due to the impossibility of returning to their territories plagued by insecurity. And the UN also reported that the number of victims of mass displacement had increased by 101% between January and May of 2021 as compared to the same period of 2020. Considering all of this, it's quite remarkable, really, that the protest movement, which, yes, waxes and wanes in terms of intensity, has not actually stopped at all and continues to mount impressive mobilizations around the country. The situation remains at something of an impasse as both sides attempt to hold their ground. But one thing is 100 percent clear. The People's Movement of Colombia cannot be crushed, even in the face of the most brutal repression. No one should doubt the seriousness of the climate crisis, that's for sure. But if you were, consider a new study this week that detailed that because of the climate crisis, the number of people regularly subject to infection by malaria and dengue fever will increase by 4.7 billion people because of a lengthened transmission season. Malaria, by the way, already kills around 400,000 people each year, mainly in Africa. Clearly, the need to press forward with international cooperation on reducing climate-changing emissions is critical, which is why it's both welcome and notable that a number of the largest climate change campaigning groups in the United States sent a message to President Biden this week demanding no new Cold War with China, saying instead the country should drastically ramp up their cooperation to save humanity from the ravages of climate change. And the groups, which included 350 Action, Friends of the Earth, the Sunrise Movement, and the Union of Concerned Scientists, along with 36 others, told Biden, quote, While we are encouraged by stated commitments from the United States and China to work together and with other countries to enact urgent climate change policies, we are deeply troubled by the growing Cold War mentality driving the United States' approach to China, an antagonistic posture that risks undermining much-needed climate cooperation. We, the undersigned organizations, call on the Biden administration and all members of Congress to eschew the dominant antagonistic approach to U.S.-China relations and instead prioritize multilateralism, diplomacy, and cooperation with China to address the existential threat that is climate change, end quote. And they further note that the escalating rhetoric, quote, also bolsters racist right-wing movements in the United States, fuels violence against people of East and Southeast Asian descent, paves the way for higher U.S. military spending, and critically, does nothing to actually support the well-being of everyday people in either China or the United States, end quote. 
They also note some important facts regarding the issue of responsibility for the climate crisis on either side, saying, quote, the United States, which is significantly wealthier than China, is the biggest carbon polluter in history, responsible for a staggering one quarter of all emissions since the start of the Industrial Revolution. China's historical emissions are half those of the United States, and emissions per capita in China are less than half the levels of the United States. They also note the clear synergy between the two nations' economies in terms of producing a strong unified response to climate change. Quote, both the U.S. and China bring complementary strengths that could be combined in a transition to a clean global economy. For example, the U.S. is the world leader in clean technology research and controls immense financial resources. China is the world leader in industrial capacity across a number of clean energy industries and is a major source of infrastructure financing across the global south. Working together could speed the transition away from dirty energy economies, end quote. The letter also rejects demonization, saying that the two nations should work together with others to create shared frameworks around environmental, human, and social rights. And the letter ends stating clearly, and in my view correctly, quote, amid a climate emergency that is wreaking havoc on communities across the globe, the path to a livable future demands new internationalism rooted in global cooperation, resource sharing, and solidarity. Nothing less than the future of our planet depends on ending the new Cold War between the United States and China. End quote. Hear, hear. The fallout from the assassination of Haiti's de facto President Jovenel Moïse this week is moving rapidly, and much still remains unknown. But information, as hard to parse as it can be, is continuing to emerge. Most notably, yesterday, the de facto government of the country paraded in front of cameras over a dozen people they claim to have been involved in the assassination. The detained individuals, which include two Haitians, both of whom are American citizens, and 15 Colombians have ties to security companies and the Colombian military, which certainly fits the narrative that the team that assassinated Jovenel was fairly professional and seemingly mercenary. That being said, no information has been provided to link them to the crime, and details about the shootout in which they were captured remain murky at the time we go to press. Further, there are discrepancies in the number of suspects the government claims to have killed as well. So for absolute certain, the information coming from this so-called government needs to be taken with a grain of salt. A few other things to recognize here. First, by the terms of Haiti's constitution, the assumption of power by Claude Joseph, who was already an illegal appointed prime minister, and his declaration of martial law also is totally illegal. The government is the continuation of Jovenel's government that had overstayed its constitutional mandate, and so this government, like that previous government, lacks any form of democratic legitimacy. Secondly, the elections slated to be held in September are not only also illegal, according to Haiti's constitution, but are being held against the wishes of the popular movement that has shaken the country since the beginning of this year. That movement has been noting since early 2021 that the plans of Jovenel and his PHTK party for elections were not legal, as he did not have the authority to call them and was doing so in contravention of the Constitution. In fact, at the time this first arose, in early February, there was a proposal from a large subset of the opposition that was endorsed by the Supreme Court of Haiti for a transitional process in accordance with Haitian laws to prepare the ground for a reconstitution of the legislature, which was dissolved by Jovenel, and also to prepare for new presidential elections. There were also other proposals, also in accordance with Haitian laws, put forward by other actors in the opposition camp. So we must be clear, the United States, 
the European Union, the Organization of American States, and the United Nations are imposing an illegal government on Haiti, one that has engaged in rampant and brutal repression of popular protests for several years now, and they are imposing that government in contravention of actual Haitian laws to conduct an illegal election that will impose a government on Haiti without a true mandate from its people. Currently, these forces are working overtime to try to sign up a handful of opposition figures to try to create a fig leaf of democracy for the September elections, but it's just that, a fig leaf. Ominously, the de facto government is also now calling for, quote-unquote, security assistance. We must understand what this means. The government under Jovenel had lost almost all legitimacy, and its own ability to control security in the country had almost totally eroded. The combination of popular unrest and the rise of armed groups many formed by former police officers, was a clear reflection of the total loss of mandate of the government that, again, was ruling illegally, something widely recognized by almost all political, social, and religious sectors in the country. So when to impose their rule now and their various schemes to buttress said rule through fake elections, they are using the specter of quote-unquote chaos and quote-unquote violence to invite in more police and military forces from around the region to make sure their opponents cannot challenge their moves. This is colonialism, plain and simple, and it follows a long pattern of sections of the Haitian elite partnering with the United States and other Western nations to use international military force as a substitute for real authority emanating from the Haitian people. In recent years, in particular in 1991 and 2004, very similar processes were used to undermine governments that sought to legislate for the poor and for the peasantry. Now it's being used to undermine the wishes of a popular movement that has been struggling mightily to turn the country around. What happens next? We'll have to see. But we all must be clear on is this, that what is happening at the governmental level in Haiti and at the level of the so-called international community is designed to control Haitians for the benefit of elites, not to improve Haiti for the benefit of its people. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 